Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Ross. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. Ninety years ago this summer, in 1933 to be exact, Missouri was in the headlines of newspapers across the country for a series of crime-related activities that engulfed many portions of the state, including Kansas City, Columbia, and Southwest Missouri. In this series, we're going to focus in on the summer of 1933, and I'm joined by special co-host Kathleen Seal. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. You might be familiar with Katie uh, from her episode 16 of our Missouri way back in 2019 when she looked at Rotoscope and Route 66, but now she is joining us to kind of share in this conversation and look back at the summer of 1933. This is a really kind of interesting time period in Missouri's history, and it's stuff I've touched on here and there for other reasons, researchers doing other projects and that sort of thing. But I think this is really kind of important, crucial time period for Missouri's history, for the nation's history. And I guess I'm just curious, why Why did you think we should do this series? Where, where did the idea for the series come from? Well, I mean, for regular listeners of the podcast, they'll know that we started out doing single stand- standalone episodes, um, looking at different books and looking at different themes. And, and very quickly in the in the in the podcast history, we kind of jumped into overall series. And we looked at you know cities like Kansas City, St. Louis. We looked at the Ozarks uh, twice. Now we've looked at the Ozarks. Uh, we looked at Title Nine. Uh, we looked at sports and border wars and things like that. And one of the constant questions people always ask was. When are you going to do a series on true crime or on mysteries or things like that? Um, and it kind of aligned quite well here in 2023 to look back to the summer of 1933 and look at a series of events that were really very closely connected in a lot of ways, as we'll kind of, we'll kind of highlight here in this episode and the other episodes, and looking at kind of the mystique about them, the, the public memory and history of them, but also kind of that true crime element. I mean, you have people like Bonnie and Clyde, you have Pretty Boy Floyd, you have all these major figures in the country in 1933 committing various crimes or alleging to be committing various crimes. It's kind of a very heightened period, uh, kind of the gangster era, public enemy era um, that goes along uh, coinciding with the Great Depression. So it was a, a topic that fit very well with this kind of course of questions revolving, you know, what kind of subject matter could be done to look at true crime um, in Missouri history. And I think one of the biggest groups connected to that really for Missouri history is Bonnie and Clyde. So I know for, for both of us, you know, we grew up in Missouri in various parts of the state, but, you know, Bonnie and Clyde has kind of always hung over state history, um, even though they're not from Missouri and, you know, the end of their lives did not take place in Missouri. Instead, it took place in Louisiana. So, you know, Katie, growing up for you, I mean, how was Bonnie and Clyde discussed? I mean, how have you encountered that even as an archivist now? Yeah, Bonnie and Clyde were that group, especially for there in the Ozarks where I grew up in southwest Missouri, 
I would say almost very similar to Jesse James. There was that that lore of these these outlaw groups. Um, in this case, it, it was very focused. I would say on Bonnie and Clyde as a historian and an archivist you, you learn there's there's a lot more to it there's actually more individuals involved in their story but it was just this very kind of the end of an era for that wild west outlaw of always on the road and on the move and they had quite a presence in southwest missouri which i think surprises a lot of people um during this time period you think either the Wild West, so they're they're out in the Western states, or you have that rise in organized crime. So they're going to be in those bigger cities like New York, Chicago, and that sort of thing. But there was a lot going on in Missouri, and not just the major cities of Missouri, but small towns. So I can just remember, I guess, just kind of always knowing Bonnie and Clyde existed at that time period, whereas some of these, I think what people would call bigger names, like Dillinger, Babyface Nelson that, you know, I know of now, they weren't really discussed because they didn't have that Ozark local connection, especially for me. I, I grew up close to Bolivar, Missouri, where there's kind of the infamous story related to Charles Floyd and Adam Ricchetti. But yeah, Body and Clyde, again, kind of that end of an era of that, that Western outlaw Again, it's rural Missouri. So those those are the stories that you're gonna be talking about, along with Ma Barker and Bell Star, because those guys are, are local to the area. So Bonnie and Clyde just really fit into kind of that lore tradition that was in the area. Whenever I was in graduate school, I worked uh, for the Missouri State Highway Patrol in the public I information and education division, uh, known as PIED, which handles a lot of media outreach, a lot of school programming, and they have a Safety Education Center at the General Headquarters of Jefferson City, which has various vehicles in patrol history. It has a history wall kind of looking at the, the, the patrol's lifetime from 1931 up until the present day, various uh, information on different departments. Um, and kind of the highlight in one of the back corners is involving that kind of 1930s era of Bonnie and Clyde and uh, you know, Machine Gun Kelly, Babyface Nelson, all these kind of individuals of the era. And of course, the, the the death of Ben Booth and Roger Wilson um, in in 1933 um, in Columbia. Ben Booth being the first uh, Missouri State Highway Patrolman killed in the line of duty. In the museum, they have information and kind of historical uh, artifacts related to the Joplin uh, shootout involving Bonnie and Clyde um, in April of 1933. But one of the most interesting things about all of this is that when I worked as a clerk there in the in the Safety Education Center, people would come in. And they would look around at the various cars, you know, um, if you've ever been to the state fair, you know, Auto the Talking Car uh, is in the highway gardens. Auto the Talking Car is on display there when it's not at the state fair. There's other vehicles. But people would be adamant, where is the Bonnie and Clyde car at? And I would be like, what? What are you talking about? And I was like, there, well, there's the there's the stuff related to Bonnie and Clyde over in this exhibit over here, uh, you know, from the Joplin shootout. And they have replicas of the photographs from that were recovered on the scene there. And people would be like, well, where's the where's the car at? And I'd be like, what car are you talking about? And there was some sort of public memory that the car that they were gunned down in in Louisiana in 1934 that had the bullet holes and the busted glass and everything like that, people were adamant that it was there, that it had been on display in that museum at some point in its history. I don't know why. I don't know where this comes from. I cannot trace it back of, of where that comes from. But off and on, you hear people come in and ask where it was at. 
as far as I could tell, at some point it was sold to a, uh, I think it was a casino out in like, uh, out West, out in like California or Nevada, where it was on display in like a glass case. It may still be, I'm not sure. I would be like, this has never been here. I, the only thing I can assume is that the, the auto, the talking car is a, I think a 31 roadster, a Ford roadster. And of course, I mean, people who are not car, you know, fanatics, car centric people are going to assume that kind of all those cars are very similar. So maybe they thought that was the car. Of course, if you've ever seen Otto, Otto has a giant face on the front of him. So I don't think the Bonnie and Clyde car had a giant face on the front of it. Not not the same one. Well, I think there's probably also some misconception because they were involved in shootouts with law enforcement here in Missouri. Mm-hmm. They escaped, however. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder if there's not some mismatching of, of information because I know I can have remembering back as as a kid having that idea of like oh they were killed in a shootout but they were in a shootout in missouri and and maybe you know compressing the two situations but as you mentioned they're actually killed down in louisiana which i don't think it it was a while before i I realized it was in louisiana because you always think of them in missouri and kansas and oklahoma and texas where they they kind of right in that region but they got around a lot and one of the places that they were at was louisiana on a couple occasions but the car is not in missouri they were not killed in missouri we can clear the record on that i i don't know the subsequent clerks that filled in for me after i left if they had similar questions or not but i know at least for me it was one of those ones where it's just like no not here there's some stuff over here but there's not the, the car is not here like this one will talk to you though speaking of which coming up here in august missouri state fair check out all the fun at the fair but also check out out of the talking car and ask Otto where the Bonnie and Clyde cars at. I bet Otto knows. Otto would know. <laughs> totally know. Well, let's jump in a little bit into Bonnie and Clyde here. You know, we've we've talked about that kind of public knowledge of them, but let's let's dive into a little bit of who they were. You know, where did they come from? You know, wh- what's their origin? Just to get a basis of who they are. Where are they from? Yeah, so they're actually both from Texas. I think what kind of surprised me the most is how young they really were so they meet early 1930 but even by that point both of them kind of had notorious backgrounds Bonnie by this point I believe is 19 Clyde's about 20 just shy of his 21st birthday when they meet Clyde had already been in prison Bonnie had already been married her husband been, I don't believe they ever divorced. I don't believe it was ever an ex-husband, but she she's left him at this point. Clyde's brother, Buck, is also uh, in trouble with the law, although he at this point, you know, tries to kind of remove himself from, from this life of crime. And actually, he turns himself in to police in I guess it would have been soon after the two of them met. So it was about 31 that he ends up going to prison. He's hoping for leniency and actually ends up being pardoned two years into his prison sentence. Yeah, I think he's pardoned about March of 1933 from the governor there, uh, Governor Ferguson. Yeah, and kind of set off to, as in various accounts, change his ways, right? He's He's gonna leave behind his criminal past and by by some accounts, convert his brother back to the the kind of straight the straight and narrow path the the, the golden rule perhaps, 
but yeah, you know, both Bonnie and Clyde had kind of been involved in various things around the time of their meeting. And yeah, so, so very young. I mean, born and, you know, I think they're 1909, 1910. I mean, they're 19, 20 years old by the time they're meeting. And it seems like in a lot of accounts that, especially for Clyde, that time spent um, in prison really didn't so much alter his ways in terms of reforming him, but instead hardened him to be, when he got out, back to his ways and perhaps even more so than, than before. So quite striking and think in a lot of ways of, of the path that they both pursued uh, at the start of the, uh, the 1930s. And he had to consider the Great Depression in all of this too, I think, especially. I mean, they both grew up very poor growing up in West Dallas, which was considered to be kind of the poor neighborhood of of, of the larger sprawling what would become Dallas met- metropolitan area. And yeah, in the midst of the Depression, people were looking for ways to get by and, you know, robbing and stealing and various things like that is an easy way to make money. And, you know, it seems like that was something that steered their path in a lot of ways was was the ability to do that and get away with it, to make quick cash. And and uh, I think something that was notable was that they never really robbed initially banks, although we'll get to that shortly about a, a failed attempt, but it was more so small town stores and service stations and things like that, quicker in and out situations, smaller halls, but certainly something that could give them cash to get them down the road. Um, and to get them to their destination, whether it be West Dallas or New Mexico or Oklahoma or, you know, into Missouri and, and up north like that, too. So I think that's something that certainly shaped who they were. And it certainly kept them kind of off the larger radar there for a while. Cause like you said, it's these smaller locales. They moved very quickly from location to location and even between states. So at this point, you don't have that national police force that can follow them across state lines but they're just stealing cars or smaller amounts so it almost keeps them more active in a way because they're not making off with large cash amounts so they're they're not able to hide out for longer they're literally having to move from place to place and basically robbing and stealing their way across because it's not just Bonnie and, and Clyde they also have uh, his brother Buck and his wife Blanche is with them. They also have an accomplice of W.D. Jones moving along with them. So it's it's a group of them moving. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, you know, Bonnie and Clyde on their own. I think they had a few forays, just the two of them. But, but for the most part, it was it was a whole group moving as well. And in movements over time, uh, you know, West Dallas and Texas becomes kind of a central focal point. We talked about uh, how people sometimes forget about Louisiana being kind of that final moment in that storyline. But Missouri becomes critical as well for a couple of different locations. And we'll get to some of those ones later on in the series. But uh, I, I think Missouri is an, is an important location because it's a, a really a crossing place. I mean, it's if you're traveling through Oklahoma, you're not too far from Missouri border or Kansas or Arkansas. You know, it's all kind of very encapsulated there into southwest Missouri and and areas like that. So Missouri was not an unusual place for them to be crisscrossing uh, in various travels. And there are a couple of locations as we get into kind of 32 and 33 that in Missouri, they become quite notable in a lot of ways. One of the first ones there is in the fall of 1932, 
and I'm going to butcher the names. Katie, I'm going to let you take over on that on this one. But the 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 attempted bank robbery in the town known as Orinogo. Okay, I would have been way off on that one. I'm a Missourian, but I still don't know some town names, unfortunately. The, the story, I I always thought maybe there's like an Irish connection, and it's Orinoco. You know, it's kind of a derivation from that. But the story I've actually heard from people in that area is mining community. It's or or no go. So it's we're gonna look for ore here. Oh. If you're done, it's a no go. So they were very creative. Okay. On that one. So yeah, or no go. Or no association yeah. I've always heard from down there. But yeah, so this this part of the state, again, you're able to cross state lines. So you're able to evade capture. You also have to think you have Route 66 going through this area, which is fully paved in Missouri by 1931. So ease of travel is is greater in that area. And then Joplin and kind of that whole area, you look back to, through the history, there is a, a rougher history, kind of lawlessness in some of that area down in, in Jasper Newton County with all of the mining communities. Not a lot of law enforcement in the area, so it was kind of a natural layover or hideout for a number of criminals. Joplin, you also have kind of the cross-section of Route 66 going up to Springfield-St. Louis, but then you also had, I guess it was 49 at that point to head up to Kansas City or through back roads as well. But yeah, so they end up here in Orinogo. Um, for an attempt at a bank robbery. I believe this is the first time they attempt to rob a bank. My understanding is that, yeah, they mostly selected service stations and, and restaurants and places like that. And that it seemed like they were trying to up the ante in a little bit and make a make a bigger haul. And that's why a bank robbery was ideal. And bank robberies at this point were not unusual. I mean, so many banks were failing so many banks were being robbed. I mean, it was a very common occurrence here in the 1930s. There wasn't the sophisticated, you know, software and technology now that can, you know, you can think of like die bags and things like that, that, that makes bank robberies a little more difficult, even video technology. But what's so striking about this, um, about this bank robbery here at the, at the Farmer and Miners Bank is that they thought it was going to be so easy. That's something that, that strikes, strikes me is that, you know, they cased the place. They sent Bonnie in first to kind of just look over the bank, kind of keep an eye on things, see how the, the, the interactions go on, how the transactions occur. But by all accounts, they were not as familiar with banks, so they didn't know kind of the the way things function at a bank, how things are operated. So they kind of went in unsure what to do. And it, it didn't cost them immediately, but certainly it had an impact on them as, as they were kind of down the road at some point in time too. So they show up, they have a getaway car parked outside um, with two of their other accomplices. They go in and basically the teller was prepared, was armed and, re and ready to go in some cases and had been strategically located in the bank so that even in the cases of a shootout, it would be harder to kind of get to the the teller than it would be in a, in a service station or, or in a restaurant or something like that. So the, the teller returns fire very, very quickly, um, and they're forced to basically grab what's on the counters. They're not, they don't get into the vault. They don't get into the stacks. They're basically just grabbing what's on the counter there, which amounts to be about $110, which is, in 1932, a, a substantial amount of money, but not, you know, 
several thousand, which is what they thought they were going to get when they when they first arrived. Added on to that, the sheer amount of gunfire and noise and commotion from the bank alerts people in the town. So by the time they get out to their vehicle to drive away, there's townspeople shooting at their vehicle um, in the street. Um, and basically they have to flee and head out. And I believe they head back to Carthage. Um, and from there, they kind of look over the situation and, and collect what they have and divide it up. But it was uh, it was uh, a less than uh, ample haul for all things considered. Speaking to to that area, I wonder if they were not the first one to have attempted to rob banks in the area. So people were prepared. And then, like you said, it, it, it was common. There were a lot of other criminals knocking over banks at this time period. So some of them, if you don't know what you're doing, and there's a lot of banks that are trying to take precautions and trying to protect themselves, because I imagine that some of these banks, they get robbed. That could be the end of their business. Like there, sure. there's no protection at this point for banks that are robbed of, of reimbursing them of money. So this is literally their livelihood of, of keeping that open. But Makes you think twice when a whole town full of people maybe come out guns a-blazing. Now, after the bank robbery, they head back. And, and a lot of the stories about Bonnie and Clyde is, you know, when in need of protection and of safety, they always go back to Texas, which is quite a striking because they're much more notable. They're much more known. They're much more visible in Texas, especially in West Dallas. I mean, down there, they have photographs of them, mugshots of them from, you know, prior arrests. So they're a little more visible to law enforcement and to individuals down there than they would be in a town like um, Ornoga, you know, but that would not be the case for very long. So, I mean, I think Missouri was safe at first to an extent, I mean, except for, you know, this bank robbery, because they weren't as well known. I think in a lot of small towns, you, they just didn't have the notoriety that the quote unquote celebrity quite yet to where it would be a little more dangerous. So they could make small pickoffs here and there. And I think they learned their lesson from this attempted bank robbery that that was not going to be the destination for them to get large hauls of money in the future. So instead, they're going to go back to Texas. They're going to continue to do small town robberies with stores and service stations. They have a habit of robbing town armories. They just break the lock at little armories, steal weapons. This is where they get a lot of their Browning automatic rifles, their BARs and use those in various uh, other crimes. And I think that's notable for a lot of their major shootouts was that in some cases they were better armed than local law enforcement, uh, which makes it easier to escape as well as to outgun somebody um, in situations of where you're trapped, um, whether it be at a bank, whether it be in an apartment, whether it be at a service station. Despite what happens in, in the fall of 32, they do not stay away from Missouri. They, they are back in the state within a matter of, uh, of weeks, really, not even that, that many months forward uh, when they stop back in and they're, and they're traveling through Springfield now. For you, Katie, I mean, how much is the story of their visit to Springfield come up in, 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 in your memory and in your, your kind of historical knowledge growing up in that area, like you mentioned uh, Bolivar earlier? Surprisingly, not as much as I, I thought it would. Like there's always the, the talk about the shootout, but I feel like the depth of information wasn't always there um until probably I got a little bit older like I don't know that I realized that there was actually uh, a, like a kidnapping involved 
um, there in Springfield with Officer Tom Purcell. They actually like carry him off for a while. I think they ended up leaving him somewhere in Joplin. You, you don't have uh, quite quite that level of of information. And maybe it could be because it was in Springfield, and that's the that's a big city in in Southwest Missouri. So that's not you know, the hill country where, where we have more of that information. But again, it just added more to the the lore and the fact that I think because it happened in Springfield probably was one of the reasons that they became more well-known because they're not in these smaller towns and communities where that word doesn't get out as much. But the fact that they're doing it in this large city, that they are kidnapping a police officer at that point, it becomes more widespread and more wide known. And I think that's probably part of the reason that their kind of history in Missouri has really been preserved and, and resonated through the years, um, as opposed to had they just stayed in smaller communities um, in their in their life of crimes, but they, they hit the big city. So that would have been in newspapers and a lot more people talking about it. Yeah, that situation is one just, the fact that not only are they kidnapping, uh, you know, Officer Purcell off of his motorcycle. I mean, he literally pulls up beside them in what is today downtown Springfield to investigate this car, and they basically point a weapon at him and pull him into the back seat and then drive off, cover him with a blanket so no one can see that there is a police officer in their back seat, obviously. And then they just drive around some of the same routes they had just traversed a couple months earlier, around the time of the bank robbery, which I think is quite brazen in the fact that you know people are probably going to know what they look like and that they're still driving around in the same communities. They end up stealing a car battery in the same area. And then they eventually, like you said, they they kind of dump him off um, outside of Joplin there for him to kind of walk back into town and then kind of tell his story. But Purcell knows exactly who it is by the time that he sees photographs. He's able to identify them, which again, makes it that much more dangerous for them that they, now there are individuals who can identify them. They know who they are. And now it's not random robberies and, and holdups and kidnappings, it's now being tied all together to the same group and the, and the same individuals. You know, he knows who, exactly who it is. He doesn't need that much information. He sees a, a photo of, uh, of, of the group um, and instantly he says, yeah, that's the individuals who we're, who we're connected with. And now there's this direct line between Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri along the highways there to say that these people are traveling quite frequently through the area, be on the lookout for that. And I think that's something that adds to it, which will take us again further in Joplin here, of what becomes the kind of the celebrity element of it too. Yeah, because they, what, fairly recently discovered photographs that the group had kind of taken of each other. And so Purcell's able to use those to ID. And now we've got clear, easy photographs. You're seeing the connections between people because it, if you look at some of the the reports from this time period, one of their co-conspirators, um, W.D. Jones, is actually often mistaken for Charles Pretty Boy Floyd. So, you know, they kind of get lost in, in some of the shuffle, but now we've got clear identification, we've got photographs, like you said, they've got connections to crimes from other states, so they become a lot more visible and a lot more easily identifiable at that point. So you mentioned photographs, Katie, and I think that's something that's really crucial because the moment in time that really skyrockets them from these various criminals and, you know, 
mugshots here and there, kind of local knowledge about these individuals from having seen them or being robbed by them or, or kidnapped is what happens in Joplin in, in April of 1933. And in this situation, they kind of had gone to Missouri under, well, for them it wasn't, but for what they were telling people under false pretenses, they essentially had told uh, Buck and Blanche that they were just going to take a vacation in, in beautiful southwest Missouri. They're going to hang around the town of Joplin. And they convince Buck and Blanche to go with them under the pretense that this is going to be a vacation. Um, and they kind of spend a couple of days in and around Joplin, kind of looking through the area, kind of seeing what's there. They find an apartment at 3347 and a half 34th Street, which is quite a lengthy number of numbers there. Two bedroom apartment, a kitchen, a bathroom, a living room, and it sat above a two car garage. And they seem to seemingly, by all accounts, play house um, for for a couple of days, kind of, you know, living it up, not being on the road. I think that's something that's important is when you spend so much time on the road driving back and forth, you know, you're living out of your car. Uh, it's a little different to be in an actual kind of home location versus kind of living out of your car, living out of a service station or or a motel or, or a cabin or something like that. But they can't stay quiet and to themselves for very long because, of course, cash is going to run out when you're using it for various things. Um, and they kind of get back involved into a series of, of, of local robberies. They ultimately steal a car. And then they have to bring it back to the apartment and do something with it because you can't just leave a, a car sitting out in the driveway that's mysterious and questionable and things like that. So they were able to access both parts of the garage to park their vehicles, although they still had to leave one out into the street. Um, and they raised concerns as, as these kind of individuals living here, traveling out at all hours of the day, not knowing what's going on. Um, but in the midst of playing house there, they are keeping their stuff there. They have their clothing there and they're taking photographs of themselves on a camera, uh, which will become later on very, very important. So after they bring the car back uh, that W. Jones had stolen, um, things take a quick turn. And, and for listeners here, uh, this is going to be a kind of a warning just of what's about to come here. It's going to get a little graphic for a second describing what happens, but I think it's important to understand just how hectic and chaotic these moments were um, here in Joplin. So local suspicion had been heightened due to the vehicles, due to their travel at various times during the day. Just neighbors were kind of concerned about what's going on. Ultimately, there's kind of a split that's happening. Uh, Buck and Blanche are going to go back to Texas. They're done being there in Joplin. Um, and Clyde and Bonnie and W.D. Jones are going to depart for parts unknown. Uh, they haven't quite specified yet, but they're also leaving Joplin. So they're getting ready to leave. So they're, they're collecting up supplies. Basically, Clyde and Jones had departed to get different things they needed in and around Joplin. And they head back to the apartment. And about the same moment they pull into the driveway and into the garage of the apartment, a vehicle appears behind them, which contained uh, Joplin police officers Thomas or Tom DeGraff, Harry McGinnis, and Jasper County Constable Wes Harriman, who were investigating the string of robberies and, and theft in the area and kind of the questionable activities that were connected to this apartment. They assume that this is going to be kind of just a quick investigation, that they're basically going to stop these individuals, question them, see what's going on. But because of the uh, high traffic area in and around Joplin, the Missouri State Highway Patrol is also involved here. And they're in a second vehicle that is containing uh, G.B. Collar and W.E. Grammer. 
as the first vehicle pulled into the driveway, Wes Harriman stepped out and walked into the open garage door, which Clyde and Jones were trying to quickly close as they saw some individuals they did not know approaching their apartment. Um, he ducks under the door and almost instantly um, a shot rings out and he is fired at by the group un within the garage door and ultimately passes away from, from that particular shooting. McGinnis soon follows Harriman's path uh, and begins to fire into the garage as well. And, and ultimately he is hit with gunfire as well and would later pass away. Inside the apartment, it's, it's very, very chaotic. Jones climbs up the stairs. He is wounded from the shooting um, and basically bursts into the room where Buck and Blanche see him essentially covered in blood and realize something is going on. And now they have to find a way to get out. So it requires them to basically make their way into the garages and then get out, which is blocked by the police vehicles in the driveway. They try to clear the, the, the garage space. They try to clear the driveway. In, in the midst of all this, Clyde is actually hit by gunfire in the chest. And in a stroke of luck, the button on his shirt somehow deflects the bullet just enough that it does not lodge deeply into his chest. He's injured, but he's not fatally injured in the midst of the shooting. They all pile under the car. They proceed to push the vehicles out of the way, and they're gone. As soon as it started, it ends, and they are off for parts unknown. And what's left in behind in all this is the, the law officers seemingly stunned by what happens. You have uh, two officers who were slain. But in a matter of time, the celebrity that Bonnie and Clyde perhaps were interested in of being famous criminals comes back to haunt them as uh, the investigation into the apartment very quickly reveals their identity because they had clothing, they had suitcases, they had guns. Bonnie's poetry uh, called Suicide Sal was in there. And this role of film, which has now become quite possibly the most famous series of photographs of Bonnie and Clyde, them standing in front of their vehicles uh, with their weapons, are now put in newspapers across the country, starting with the Joplin Globe. And now everybody knows who Bonnie and Clyde are and what they look like. And now, you know, any sort of hiding out or traveling is going to be so much harder because now everyone knows exactly what they look like. And I think most ironic in all of this was the fact that Buck Barrow had claimed that he wanted to pursue a life of non-criminal activities. And when police are going through the apartment in Joplin, they come across his pardon paperwork from the governor of Texas. His literally freedom card uh, was now discovered by police connecting him to a crime now connected to Joplin, Missouri. But the story does not end there, as, as we will cover later on in the series. So I think that's a striking incident of what happens there in the apartment, Katie. Yeah, and I think kind of putting this in the timeline, so this happens, what, April 13th of 33, so we're just rolling into the summer of 33, where a lot more activity takes place, so they kind of, in a way, outed themselves as these criminals at the beginning of what's just going to be a long series of kind of ever increasing in, in intensity of outbreaks of, of criminal activity, which I think just puts them more and more into that limelight. Like they are, they are certainly, they've killed a number of individuals, they've robbed a number of places. So they're, they're high up there on the list as well. But I think some of that notoriety is also further enhanced by the fact that 
they're there in Missouri and a lot of their activities is also going to get mentioned over and over again as we move throughout the summer and just more and more incidents of greater scale happen across the state as well. This is when the FBI gets involved in the manhunt. Because in mid, wait, mid to late May, May 20th, 1933, the FBI, what becomes the FBI is actually able to get involved with the manhunt on Buddy and Clyde because one of the vehicles they have stolen, they're able to trace back and connect to Bonnie and Clyde as having been transported across state lines, which is really the only way the FBI has jurisdiction for these crimes at this time period because they don't have a lot of the authority that they have now. So the manhunt really becomes federal in May of that year and follows through until um, they're ultimately gunned down. And for part two, we'll we'll jump forward in the timeline into June. So two months forward in time to June of 1933. We'll leave Bonnie and Clyde behind, although the people searching for them don't know where they're at exactly. And we'll pick up part two with a bank robbery in Mexico, Missouri, and a subsequent roadblock on highways 40 and 63 in Columbia, Missouri. Are they looking for Bonnie and Clyde? Are they looking for somebody else? We'll find out soon enough, but we'll ultimately cover the story of Ben Booth, Roger Wilson, and the mystery surrounding the shootout at the intersection of 40 and 63. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. <laughs>